Welcome to the Cambridge Café Scientifique podcast. I'm Martha Henriquez and this month I was speaking to Shankar Balasubramanian of Cambridge University's Chemistry Department. Shankar works on DNA sequencing and developed a revolutionary technique in the late 1990s, Selexar sequencing, to speed the process up. This brings the goal of personalising medical treatments to information on the DNA sequence of an individual one step closer to everyday use in hospitals. But first, I asked Shankar why is the DNA code so important? That code defines our architecture, all of our genes and how they're controlled, Um, not just for people but for all living things on the planet. So being able to decode um, the DNA for all living things is absolutely fundamental to understanding how they work or or sometimes uh, when things go wrong, um, how that might be rooted in the DNA. Um, And sequencing... um, has evolved to a point where it can do this about a million times faster than the decoding process could be done 10 years ago. Um, So given the fact that the human genome, for example, is 3 billion um, units long, so you have to decode 3 billion letters. That's a very complex process. And unless you can do it very quickly you won't be able to learn about different human beings. So this was the main driving force. How is your technique different from old traditional ways of DNA sequencing? Well, the way people have been sequencing from um, the late 1970s um, through the Human Genome Project was using a method invented in Cambridge by Fred Sanger. So that method was called Sanger sequencing. And a a very um, outstanding method. It worked very well. It still works very well. And uh, that method was improved during the Human Genome Project to make it faster and cheaper. Um, But technologically, it, it kind of saturated towards the end of the Human Genome Project. It couldn't be made to go much faster. So Selexa sequencing is a completely different... um, process both mechanically and at the molecular level. It's a totally new way of doing it. And the main advantage of Selexa sequencing is that you can sequence literally billions of different fragments of DNA in parallel at the same time on a miniaturized chip. So that, that's what gives it um, the power to be able to sequence at a level that's very different from, from Sanger sequencing. Now, there have been some other sequencing methods that were invented as well after Sanger sequencing, um, and they're scientifically very elegant methods, and some of them are still being developed. Um, At the moment, um, Selexa sequencing is, is the approach that most people are using. In basic science, there's a driving force to know the genome sequence of every living organism on the planet, every species... Um, be it plants, animals, microbes. So that's a mammoth task and it's fundamental and being able to sequence quickly and uh, in a cost-effective manner is is, is absolutely um, gating that process. So now that's opened up. But I think the application that was really the driver in my mind when we first thought of Selexa sequencing was, was sequencing people for human health. And there are many diseases. Cancer is the most obvious one, which is caused 
by changes in our genome sequence. So to really understand every type of cancer, you, you need to understand the sequence of every type of cancer, and each one is unique. And so I, I think where the biggest revolution is taking place is, is in the clinic, where diseases that are genetically caused and genetically defined can, can now be taken apart at the molecular level by sequencing the genomes of these patients to understand at the fundamental level what's causing it and to draw from that clues as to how we should go about preventing it, whether that's knowing when to use existing medicines that are approved or, or knowing where we need to develop medicines against new targets. So that revolution is already starting to happen and over the next decade I think we're going to see massive changes in how this has an impact on how patients are treated and managed in the healthcare system. What are the current limitations on the technique and what future challenges do you see? So the challenge for the past decade has been technological. Is there a way of doing it cheaply and quickly? And, and, and now there is, and this particular method is continuing to get faster and, and cheaper. So I think the, the goalposts are shifting more towards, um, as we sequence large numbers of, of people, be they patients or, or, or not, on a population scale, we're going to start gathering lots and lots of data. So I think the next challenge is, is to manage this accumulating massive data set in a way that allows us to pull out clues that enhance our understanding of, of, of disease states and how to treat them. So that's an information analysis problem. And um, that, that is going to be the next bottleneck in this area, the next challenge. But enough questions from me. What did the Cambridge Cafe Scientific audience want to ask Shankar? So I have some very fundamental questions. Do you think the genome is static in every human being? Or does this change over the lifespan of a human being? The basic question is, is our genome stable? Or does it change? Um, now, at the level of what is the sequence of the genome, it's, it's relatively stable. Uh, now, what's, what's happening to our genome every day, all the time, is um, things like UV light, interstellar radiation, things that we eat, oxidative metabolism, all causes chemical insults to our DNA. And fortunately, nature has evolved machinery to repair and correct these things. Um, but that's not 100% perfect. And again, depending on who we are and how we live and how well our maintenance machinery is working, um, our ability to keep the genome in every cell in our body stable will vary. Um, so there are somatic changes, there are random changes in our genome that can happen. This is what ultimately leads to, um, to, to cancer cells being generated. And um, there again, there are, there are mechanisms that have evolved 
to try and sense when something terribly destabilizing has happened to our genome and abort those cells. But when those mechanisms aren't working perfectly, there is a chance to propagate a cell harboring a very altered genome that's unstable. So the, the, the simple answer to your question is that there are processes that can lead to heterogeneity and a destabilized genome. And there are mechanisms that can, can, can stall that. But when these um, safety mechanisms fail, that's when this can start to propagate. Taking a step back from the fundamentals of the science, another member of the audience wanted to know about the ethics, legal aspects and wider social context of DNA sequencing. While you were talking, I was wondering, perhaps facetiously, who the first, who was the subject of the first genome? Whether this person is an anonymous person, whether this, whether this person, male or female, even is still alive. One hopes that that person is. But then that made me consider who in the future might have the rights to this research information um, and if you're visualising uh, in 10 years time a, a great global increase in the possession of you know, vast amounts of data who will have legal ownership of it for instance um, and could there be issues that will concern individuals greatly as to who knows all this stuff about them, particularly in, when you're talking about diseases where, such as Alzheimer's, you know, which at the moment, yes, scientists, clinicians, they need the information, but at the moment there are not the cures and there are not the therapies. I would imagine that those are potentially quite sort of controversial areas. And, and how would you, what, what would you say about how you visualise the, the future that you've started describing to us? Very good questions and important questions um, of, of, of the ethics of how we develop the implementation of, of, of these ideas. So the first question, the, the Human Genome Project genome, the, the first one, was not one person. Um, it was basically a mixture of several people. I think one of them... I understand one of them was, was either Jim Watson or Craig Venter, I think, mm -hmm. part, of, part of the mix, because Craig Venter at that time was part of a publicly funded effort in, in the States, in um, Bethesda. But it was actually several people had their genomes sort of mixed, is the answer to that question. Now, what, what happens to who, who has legal rights to genomic data? It's a very, very good question. Um, now I'll tell you what I understand is the process um, that's being adopted in, in experimental studies that involve people um, who, who are part of a clinical study and it, it's similar to what happens in clinical trials in, all the samples get um, de-identified or anonymized as they get put into the database. So the identity of all the individuals and their records is, 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 is separated, is protected. Uh, and and that, is, that is done so that all the data and the associated information 
like the clinical history, can be, can be abstracted in a way that's independent of the identity of individuals, but used to, to, to further the course of science or clinical understanding. So that, that's my understanding of, of, of how that process takes place, um, which is why the identities of the individuals is, is protected in their relationship with their samples and so forth. Um, who owns all this data in the future? Is, is a very good question um, and it's, it's probably in part going to be linked to who pays for the generation of all this data. So I think if the NHS was to um, pay for this to happen, um, it would belong to all of us or belong to the UK government, presumably. I think it's unlikely that the NHS is going to pay for everyone to have their genome sequenced. Um, at the moment there are clinical services that allow individuals to pay to have their genome sequenced, um, whether or not it's for a clinical condition, in which case um, the, the, the sequence data belongs to the individual. That's the process at the moment. Um, quite what models evolve in the future, um, I, I think that hasn't been worked out yet because no one's yet worked out who's going to, you know, how is this all going to be done? Is it going to be a private enterprise? Is it going to be a public enterprise? Or is it going to be a private-public partnership? Which is actually what I think is most likely. And, and I think if it's the latter, um, if there's private money funding some of this, I would expect they would, they would want some sorts of rights to um, commercially exploit the outcomes of the data analysis, but not necessarily own the data. And finally, how is this research shaped by political and financial influences? Obviously, you received your funding early on in the mid-90s from the BBSRC. So it was a government um, organisation using taxpayers' money to fund essentially what we call basic science. Um, obviously, I imagine now, in your kind of current standing, if you went to a funding body and said, you know, I have this fantastic technique and all of this about personalised medicine and all that we can do, I don't imagine that you would have a serious problem getting funding with regard to that. However, the government will be reducing the scientific funding. So what kind of impact do you think this is going to have on science, like this reduction in funding for the basic breakthroughs, for instance? So like, you wouldn't if you were starting off again now, do you think you'd have had to have been much more focused in the outcome rather than just exploring this general idea that you had in the beginning? It's a, it's a very important um, question and um, I would be interested in the views of all of you actually because we all pay taxes in this room so we, um, we have a say in this. Um, th there is an emphasis today on outcomes and um, be being able to predict outcomes before you actually do the experiment. Now the way science works um, Whenever one of my students asks me if an experiment or a project is going to work, as they put it, 
Um, I, I reply by saying, if, if we knew the outcome, there's actually no point in doing the experiment. We're doing the experiment because we don't know what's going to happen. Now, that, that, is, that is the spirit of scientific investigative research that most of us in science want to practice and what, what drew us into science. Now, in, in terms of outcomes, I, I would argue that whatever outcomes I've had in my research career have not been outcomes that I could have predicted, um, in, including commercially successful outcomes. I could reel off many, 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 many examples that have turned out to be very useful where people weren't trying to do anything useful, but they were watchful of the opportunity to learn from their discoveries and do something further. Um, so, on, on your first point, I, I think when people try to do something useful, they tend to try to do something that's already defined. Um, and by, by definition, it's, it's, it's not original. It's already been done. And it doesn't really stretch the imagination in, in the way that research can and, and should. It doesn't lead to discoveries. It doesn't lead to breakthroughs. Um, it may make modest, incremental contributions to an area. So I, I, I disfavor forces that make us all conservative in what we try to achieve. That's it for this month's Cambridge Café Scientifique. And thanks to Shankar Balasubramanian from Cambridge University for a fascinating talk. If you'd like to attend Café Scientifique, the details are on their website, cambridgecafescientifique.com. The Triple Helix Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council and this podcast was produced by me, Martha Henriquez, from The Naked Scientists.